This is Mayo Clinic Docs, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. In the United States, approximately 10,000 individuals are diagnosed with skin cancer every day. In fact, more people are diagnosed with skin cancer each year than all other cancers combined. This is just one of the many dermatologic conditions which often present to the primary health care provider. Other common conditions which we see in the office practice include rosacea, eczema, onychomycosis. We'll discuss these conditions and more with Dr. Mark Davis, a dermatologist within the Department of Dermatology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Mark, welcome. Thank you very much, Daryl. Well, let's start by talking about skin cancer, because that's the thing we probably worry most about with our patients in terms of missing a diagnosis. Um, Who is at risk for developing skin cancer? Well, basically everybody's at risk, but people with lighter skin tones, like people with white skin or lighter tones of skin, have a greater tendency towards being susceptible to skin cancer. So that that is the population that um, is more at risk. Any difference between males and females? Doesn't that really matter? Um, It doesn't really matter. Um, It um, it affects males and females. And in those skin colors, it's really um, exposure to the sun that poses the greatest risk um, in terms of susceptibility to skin cancer in the everyday setting. All right. So if an individual has had multiple severe sunburns early in their life, do they continue to be at risk throughout the rest of their life? Is there a safe period if they've gone like 20 years, uh, then the risk goes down? Or is That's a great question, and we don't have definitive answers as regards that. But we do know that uh, five sunburns are greater when you're a child or an adolescent. doubles your risk of getting melanoma later on. And then we also know that cumulative sun exposure um, is a risk factor for the non-melanoma skin cancers. So the risk goes up directly with them, with, with, with the amount of sun exposure that you get, uh, the older you get. Because when we were kids, you know, I don't think sunscreen was even available at the time. In fact, we were putting things on our skin to enhance the sun effects. So That's right. <laughs> sunburns were a common part of growing up in Minnesota. So let's say, again, somebody has had uh, previous uh, exposure to sun with some significant sunburns. Are, is the skin at risk for developing skin cancer only in the sun-exposed area? The answer to that is all of the skin is at risk of developing skin cancer, even the areas that were not exposed to the sun, but the risk is greater in those areas that were exposed to the sun. It's interesting, we do know with the non-melanoma skin cancers, which are called basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas, are the most uh, uh, well-known of those, and most, um, most common of those, that they occur in the areas that get the most sun. But melanomas can occur in the areas which are intermittently exposed to sun or sunburns. For example, your back um, in, in men or the legs in women, they're the, the areas pro- more prone to melanoma. Um, due to blistering skin disease when you're when you're a child, hmm. do most melanomas arise from a pre-existing nevus, or do they start de novo from nothing? People with lots of moles are at increased risk of melanoma, but the 
lesions that appear de novo, in other words, the new lesions that appear, they're the ones that are more likely the melanomas rather than the pre-existing moles transforming into melanoma. Hmm. Okay. Which is uh, interesting. It is, yeah. Are all three types, basal cell, squamous cell, melanoma, all related to sun exposure? We definitely think so, yes. Um, again, the type and timing of the sun exposure seems to be um, an important factor. So for melanoma, it's intermittent um, serious sun exposure. That seems to be the greatest risk for melanoma. But for non-melanoma skin cancer, it's definitely the cumulative risk, uh, cumulative exposure to the sun that, that increases your risk. Mm. So for example, we're out in this weather, out all day in the sun, um, you will increase your risk in those areas that are exposed to the sun, um, your face and your dorsal hands. Um, if you're wearing a T-shirt, your, your upper arms. Mm -hmm. And clouds really don't protect us all that much, do they? They don't protect us um, all that much, no. But there's still an awful lot of UVA and UVB coming through those clouds. In fact, nearly 70 to 80% of the UVA and UVB that would be there without any cloud is still coming through. I've heard mixed opinions about sun coming through a window. Yeah, the, generally windows will stop UVB from coming through, but UVA will still come through, and UVA increases your risk of skin cancer. Okay. Now, I've had some patients who have had basal cell, squamous cell, and melanoma. So if you have one type of skin cancer, are you at increased risk of getting a second or all three? Yes, you are. Um, if you've had one type, then you will be predisposed towards all other types. Um, the risk increases no matter what kind of uh, skin cancer that you've developed of getting either melanoma or non-melanoma skin cancers. So what should we be telling our patients in terms of preventing them from getting skin cancers? I think the main message is to protect the skin from the sun. Um, the, the ideal thing is not to get so, I mean, ideally, to minimize the risk of skin cancer, you would tell people not to get sun at all. But um, we know that for many reasons, it's nice to be exposed to sun a little bit. Otherwise, it makes the endocrinologist unhappy that because then they said you don't get any vitamin D. Exactly. Um, but we, we know that short exposure to the sun is fine, but we want to minimize the cumulative sun exposure on the, in the, in, uh, on the skin. So avoiding the sun completely, or if you're going out, wearing sun protective clothing is probably one of the best ways to do it. And then we also wear sunscreen, which is applied before you go out rather than being out in the sun and then suddenly starting to apply it on a beach. Mm -hmm. um, in the, and you've already had half an hour of exposure to the sun by that time. And a lot of it is unevenly applied when you're out on the beach or um, and you can't see where you're putting it. Let's talk a little bit about sunscreen. Mm -hmm. uh, it is effective? Absolutely. Um, it's well demonstrated that applying sunscreen decreases your risk of melanoma. And it also decreases your risk of particularly squamous cell carcinomas on the skin. A couple of studies have suggested that the, its effect is not as great for the non-melanoma skin cancer called basal cell carcinoma, and we're not really sure why that is. But um, it's been well demonstrated that you protect your skin from the sun with sunscreen, you will decrease your risk of skin cancer and pre-skin cancers. And it's listed with an SPF number. What That's number right. should we be using in both? In general, although there's a lot of relabeling being being considered by the FDA at the moment, um, in general, we recommend that an SPF of 15 to 30 should be the minimal that you'd wear and up from that. Um, and it should be broad spectrum. In other words, pr 
it should be labeled as protecting your skin from both UVA and UVB, not just um, UVB. Oh, that's the first I've heard of that. So yeah. there is some out there that does not protect you against both. There are, but they're less and less because really the FDA has recommended that an, mm -hmm. a proper sunscreen should protect against both. Hmm. Now, I've also heard this, and I don't know if it's true, that the sunscreen has a particular shelf life, and if you've had some left over from last summer, you should throw it out That's and get right. some new stuff? You should check the um, expiration date of that sunscreen because the, a lot of sunscreens are made up of different chemicals, and they can expire and be become ineffective. And um, after a certain amount of time, that sunscreen may not be effective. So really check the expiration date on the bottle and ideally don't use them for much beyond that expiration date because they may be ineffective by the, um, once they've gone beyond that expiration date. All right. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Well, let's turn from skin cancer now to uh, rosacea. Okay. Got a fair number of patients who's had, who've had rosacea. Who's at risk for developing this? More fair-skinned people um, develop rosacea. It's been reported. Um, and darker-colored skin, it's, it's rare to come across a diagnosis of rosacea. Why that is, we're not entirely sure, but it, it's diagnosed much more in fair-skinned fair people, and um, particularly of Celtic origin. So um, I'm from Ireland, and rosacea would be very common in Ireland, for example, with mm -hmm. the Irish white skin. Um, to have that blush of rosacea and those pimples associated with rosacea and the changes that, um, other changes that occur with that disorder. And it's limited to the face? Generally, it is limited to the face, yes. Um, rarely affects other areas. So one would think it may be somewhat related to sun exposure then. Yeah, it is thought that sun exposure does play a role there with it. Um, it's also thought that some people with very fair skin or Celtic skin have increased va vascular reactivity to, you know, to different temperatures, and maybe that's playing a role as well. We don't really understand why exactly it happens. Um, um, we don't really understand the pathogenesis of rosacea very well, although it's multi multiple mechanisms postulated for it. Okay. Are you looking for up-to-date CME on geriatrics? Attend the Geriatric Update for the primary care provider held November 14, 2019 at Mayo Clinic in lovely Rochester, Minnesota. You can maximize your time by receiving the latest need-to-know updates and practice models for evaluating, managing, and caring for your geriatric patients. You can meet me there as well. I'll be speaking on urinary incontinence. Registration for this popular course fills up quickly. Visit ce.mayo.edu slash geriatrics2019 for more information. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Well, let's turn to eczema. How would you describe eczema? Because I've seen patients with a variety of different types, yeah. and it's always hard for me to separate those. Yeah, well, the way I think about eczema, I think more and more the term eczema is being used synonymously with dermatitis. And dermatitis, when you think about it, means skin, derm, and itis means inflammation. So it's inflamed skin. And, of course, infl inflamed skin can happen for an enormous variety of reasons. And... Um, that's why we see lots of different types of dermatitis or eczema. How is it typically treated? 
generally, uh, you know, our magic potion for this is topical corticosteroids. Either a low potency is completely adequate for many types of um, dermatitis or eczema affecting areas of thin skin like the face. Um, but mid-potency, such as triamcinolone uh, cream, is very effective for other areas of dermatitis, really no matter where it is, unless it's really severe dermatitis. And once you have eczema, are you pretty much destined to have it through the rest of your life? Well, it depends on what kind of eczema that we're talking about. I think when you're using that, some people call use the term eczema for atopic dermatitis, where people are predisposed towards getting recurrent dermatitis throughout their childhood. Um, and that type of eczema may continue on into the adulthood. Um, other types of dermatitis do tend to be recurrent, like seborrheic dermatitis, which affects the scalp and causes dandruff and affects the central face with scaling. Um, that type of dermatitis does tend to be recurrent. Then there's other types of dermatitis or eczema that happen due to contact with, um, with uh, things that you become allergic to or irritants that you come in contact with to, say, at work. And that's um, another form of dermatitis. But once you remove that contact, and often the dermatitis will go away. Mm-hmm. I want to touch a little bit on psoriasis as well, uh, because I've, I've heard there's some new treatments available for that. Yes. Well, psoriasis is something that occurs in about 2% of every population in the world. And it is a particular form of inflammation of the skin which is distinctive from eczema or dermatitis. It consists of pink plaques with a very thick scale that can occur in typical areas like on the elbows and knees and scalp and can be much more widespread than that. And that form of, um, that, that, that's called psoriasis. And it traditionally has been quite hard to treat because it's more thickened plaques that occur. Now, um, traditionally, we've used topical steroids to try and beat it down. We've also used phototherapy where patients go out in the sun or are exposed to, to light in other ways, and that makes it beaten down. And we've had some treatments that shut off the immune system so that the psoriasis is turned off, like methotrexate. But in the last few couple of decades, we've had an explosion of new biologic treatments that are very targeted towards the inflammatory pathways that cause psoriasis. And those treatments have become more and more commonplace for psoriasis and more and more successful in controlling psoriasis. One of the problems is that there are a new class of drugs which are extraordinarily expensive and a big strain on the, on the health systems uh, um, when, when we prescribe it because it can be up to 2% of a population that have psoriasis. So, um, and then the problem is psoriasis is a lifelong disease which waxes and wanes and then the question comes up as to whether patients will end up on these medications for their entire lives. And um, that's, that's kind of a, an area that is being explored right now. But these new treatments for psoriasis, the biologic treatments, are incredibly successful in controlling the outbreaks of psoriasis and, and flares of psoriasis. I see them advertised on TV all the time, but they yeah. don't seem to mention the cost of the drug. Yeah, um, and um, that is something that I think every health system is struggling with right now because they're in the orders of hundreds of thousands of dollars per year Mm -hmm. at the moment. There are generics um, coming out, but the new generics that are coming out at the moment are not that much cheaper than the originals. So I think it's something that's being explored very much right now. Of course, there are a new class of drugs, and as we get used to having them on the market and more generics come on board, hopefully they'll get into a more affordable range. I remember when I was a resident on internal medicine and uh, we would have to go do consults up on the derm floor in Methodist and uh, go up there and it 
smelled like someone just put a fresh coat of asphalt down on the uh, hallway. Is the tar still being used for uh, treating this? You know, tar is what we used to use before corticosteroids came, um, became available, before topical corticosteroids became available in the 1950s. And um, it actually works very well for psoriasis in combination with light. So we still have that in our back pocket for those rare patients who are not responding to all these new fancy drugs that we have. We give them three weeks of light and tar. And believe it or not, even though they smell like they're uh, that, that, like, like asphalt um, for those three weeks, it actually works incredibly well mm. as a treatment. But, you know, like every treatment for psoriasis, once you stop it, your, your psoriasis is going to come back at a certain point. Um, remissions of up to a year following that um, tar and light treatment um, are commonplace but then it often does come back. And just like the drugs, um, you, the drugs only last for basically as long as you prescribe them. And once you stop the drugs, the risk of the psoriasis coming back is markedly increased mm -hmm. the longer you're away from the treatment. I just remember the patients being very slippery. When That's right. <laughs> Let's talk about a condition that I have a feeling is equivalent to when patients come in saying, doctor, I'm dizzy, urticaria. Oh, yes. Urticaria... It means hives. Yeah. Um, up to 20% of the population will have hives at some time in their life. Um, most often, hives are due to a reaction to a food or a medication um, or a, an, a, an infection of some sort, like a viral infection or basically any type of infection. Those would be the commonest causes of acute urticaria. And usually they're self-limited and they go away, these hives. And you get them uh, once or twice in your life. Some unfortunate people get develop um, urticaria out of the blue and, you, and the urticaria continues. And that um, becomes quite a clinical problem sometimes. Um, because if it goes on for more than six weeks, then it's classified as chronic urticaria. And in that form of urticaria, we rarely find the cause of what's, um, what, what's making it happen, which is what patients want us to do, is to find the cause. Right. And it's very frustrating for them when we say that we are not going to be able to find the cause, and we know straight off the bat that it's probably not going to be possible. We do know that there's a remission rate um, each year. Less and less people who have that chronic urticaria will have it. In other words it remits um, after some time. So we have to bring patients through that period when they have that flare of um, urticaria. And I imagine the hardcore ones are the ones that end up in your office because the easy right. ones we've already taken care of. That's right. The ones, we have great antihistamines that respond and that work very well nowadays for most cases of urticaria, but the ones I see in my office are generally the ones that are not responding to those um, antihistamines. Yeah. Our first step is always to treat them with antihistamines, use, um, try different combinations of antihistamines, different doses of antihistamines. Often that is helpful, but sometimes we have to go to more exotic um, ways of approaching um, trying to control the urticaria. But a very tough clinical problem for patients. But I do tell them that most of the time it's going to remit over time. Mm -hmm. Another common thing I see in my practice is onychomycosis. Onychomycosis, uh, yeah. yes, absolutely incredibly common, I think. Much more common than even some of the prevalence studies that I've seen um, reflect, I think, because so many people have that. As you get older, your chances of getting onychomycosis, which means fungal infection of the toenails, increases. And um, a lot of older people and, and younger people have these thickened yellowish discolored toenails, which bother them mostly from a cosmetic viewpoint, I think. 
is there a treatment that is permanent? I see it so often being treated, and then I see them back next year, and it's, yeah. it's back again. Well, the funny thing is that when you look at all the ads for all the antifungal treatments for anechomycosis, you'd swear that they, we had the cure. But really, any of those treatments only work about 50% of the time. And even when they work, the recurrence rate is anything from 20 to 40%, and some people even say higher over years. So um, it can be very frustrating for patients again. But it's great that we do have these oral antifungals that at least work 50% of the time. So when I see somebody with yellowish um, or thickened, with thickened toenails that are yellowish in discoloration, y- you have to think about about 50 to 60% of those toenails will be due to fungal infection. And I get a clipping to just prove it, that it is fungus. And then I try, if they want to try those oral antifungals, we try those. The topical antifungals and some of the other treatments would work much less frequently. So I I, I think that the rates of success with those treatments is really um, low. And so I usually don't use those very much. Okay. Finally, let's touch on warts. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, especially plantar warts. Those mm-hmm. are difficult. Uh, I think patients will put up with warts on the upper extremities, but when they're in the bottom of the foot, it sometimes uh, causes discomfort when they yeah. walk. So they want them treated. Yeah. What's the best way to get rid of those? Good question. And again, this is an area which we are not great at is warts um, in management. Um, one of the reasons that they're so uncomfortable on the bottom of the feet is that they, when they grow, when they are getting bigger, they don't stick out on your foot because you're walking on it all the time. They tend to grow inwards, and so they then press on the muscles and the nerves under your foot, and that's why they feel painful to walk on. So one of the techniques to control the discomfort is to get par- patients to pare those down. The treatment with the best proven efficacy is what's over the counter, and that's the, all the salicylic acid-containing preparations. They can be creams, ointments, Um, They can come in a Band-Aid, they can come in all sorts of ways, and they're all available over the counter for treating warts. And what they do is basically dissolve the keratin in the wart and have quite a good success rate in getting rid of warts. But of course, what we see in the office are, are those ones that will not go away. And there's lots of ways to approach those. Most of the ones, the approaches are to basically destroy the wart, whether it be by digging it out with a knife or by burning it, or by freezing it, or by lasering it. All of these things um, basically get rid of the wart physically um, in your office. They leave you with a hole in your foot, which can be quite sore to heal. And the problem is, they only work about, every time you do them, the treatment, it only works about half the time, about 50% of the time. And then the wart recurs, and the patients have to come back and have further treatments. And it's quite a painful series of different treatments mm-hmm. to, to get rid of them. So uh, with many patients, I encourage them to think about just keeping them pared down, try the over-the-counter salicylic acid, and wait and see, will the wart go away? Because we know, again, as a natural history, that warts go away over time. Yeah, in fact, I've heard it said that warts go away after about eight weeks of treatment or two months without treatment. That's right. <laughs> That's a good way of thinking about it. And the other thing I always say to our trainees is that we rarely see warts in older people. It's funny, it's a younger person's yeah, disease and true. it usually goes away and we don't see p- um, older people with warts. I've got to ask you this question because my friend insists it works and I just don't know if I believe him. Duct tape. Duct tape. Yeah, I I 
think um, the nice thing about duct tape is, yeah, it's been well published to be quite um, helpful in managing warts. And what it does is it causes occlusion of whatever you're using to the wart um, and increases penetration of the wart. So yes, I, I do advise patients that if they're using a cream or a solution containing salicylic acid to put duct tape over that. And what it does is it, it causes occlusion of the wart, more penetration of that salicylic acid. And it also, you get maceration under it. In other words, it gets soft and water late, water, waterlogged and it tends to um, be more fragile and be able to be to peel off that wart when you take take off the the duct tape yeah, after a few days. I can't believe he was correct. On that. <laughs> All right. We've been discussing common outpatient dermatologic conditions with Dr. Mark Davis, a dermatologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Mark, thank you for sharing this information with us. Thank you very much, Daryl. Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can access and listen to over 100 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.